Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddham damam sangham namasami For some reason, I <clears throat> was in the mood to begin the talk that way. It's kind of a traditional way. It's done usually um, more often by monks or nuns. Um, but there you have it. It's a nice way to begin a talk. A little homage to the Buddha. and um, I think it's nice to hear uh, the Pali language sometimes, this ancient language that really is the reason we have any of the teachings of the historical Buddha is because uh, this language has, has been the vehicle for transmitting those. Um, it's, uh, this language doesn't exist, is not spoken anywhere, doesn't exist except as a vehicle for, um, for bringing these teachings uh, to us over these centuries. I want to start this evening, maybe this is why I was inspired to... Uh, do my little Pali chanting to begin. I want to read um, the first stanza, the opening paragraph of one of the most beloved uh, and famous uh, discourses, teachings of the Buddha. It's um, it's the single most comprehensive set of meditation instructions in the entire Pali canon, uh, the entire collection of many, many volumes of teachings that the Buddha gave over a long teaching career. And really all of the instructions, everything that we offer in terms of meditation instructions, uh, derive from this, this teaching. So I want to uh, start the talk by, by looking into it a little bit. We'll be talking about it in different ways over the week. So these are the words of the Buddha. And a little Pali again. Ewang me sutang. So this discourse and uh, almost all of the, the discourses begin with these three words, Ewang me sutang, which means, thus have I heard. And uh, points to the fact that these teachings were were heard orally and memorized and passed down orally for uh, quite a long time, a few hundred years uh, after the death of the Buddha until they were finally written down. Now, thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Buddha was living in the Kuru country where there was a town of the Kuru people named Kamasadamma. There he addressed the bhikkhus thus. A bhikkhu is a, it's a monk, but it's any, any one practitioner, so it's not just monks. It's um, anyone who is uh, practicing the Buddha's teachings, the Buddha Dhamma. There he addressed the bhikkhus thus. Bhikkhus. Venerable sir, they replied. The blessed one then said this, because this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana. 
namely the four foundations of mindfulness. This is how he begins this teaching. And it's kind of a strong statement, a powerful statement. This is the way that would lead to um, the purification of, of beings. What does that mean for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation and the disappearance of pain and grief? Attaining the, the true way, Nibbana, which is this uh, Pali version of Nirvana, means uh, the Buddha's awakening or enlightenment. And different ways we might hold that, but this understanding that leads to uh, a certain uh, deep inner peace. And what, what is what is he actually? What is he pointing to with these words? So the word Satipatthana, the name of this discourse, the name of this uh, teaching, these meditation instructions. It's usually translated as foundation of mindfulness. That's how I read it in this uh, paragraph that I just read. But it's actually a compound of two words. Uh, the word sati is the word for mindfulness. And upatana is a word that means establishment, literally. And so I think actually uh, to call it an establishment of mindfulness rather than foundation is is a better, more literal translation. I think... It's a subtle distinction, but important, I think, because it places an emphasis more on the quality or attitude of awareness, the establishing of this mindfulness, mindful awareness. That's the the important thing. And any particular object of awareness is of less importance in that, if we establish it. So we could equate it or think of it as a sense of abiding or dwelling in mindfulness, abiding in mindful awareness as we move through our life, through our meditation, through our life outside of meditation. So this quality of mindful awareness, this is the key. This is the, this is what's being pointed at as being important. We can learn what we need to from any object, anything that we become aware of. This is good news. It means we don't have to have it be any particular way. And as you probably noticed over the course of today, it probably wasn't always the way you wanted it to be, (laughs) your experience in meditation. You got all kinds of stuff arising, and not all of it was what you might have chosen to have happen, to have be going on. So, this sutta discourse, the satipatthanas, this, in this teaching, what the Buddha does is he breaks down the entirety of what we can experience through the senses. So you could say our whole life, the whole flow of experience, all of it, no exclusions, into these four, um, kind of four frames of reference. One teacher calls it frames of reference. Or you could say, um, um, spheres of attention, ways of looking. So these four uh, arenas are mindfulness of body. It's called kaya, nupasana. Kaya is body, material form, materiality. Feeling tone, vedana, which is the um, flavor of experience that's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So uh, we will say neutral for shorthand. 
So it's a very specific quality. Uh, with every experience, every contact at any sense door, there is a feeling of either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither of these. Sometimes it's very obvious, uh, something we really like to eat. There's a, the pleasant quality is very clear. Um, something that, um, pain in the body, painful sensation, the unpleasant feeling tone. Neutral, we tend mostly not to, to even really notice it very much. So we see the experience in terms of body, feeling tone, in terms of um, the quality uh, of the mind, the way the mind is affected by different uh, mental states and um, things that arise there. So we know the mind when it's affected by desire or aversion, um, when it's not affected by these things, when it's restless, when it's not restless, when it's sleepy and dull, when it's not sleepy and dull, when it's concentrated, when it's not concentrated, and so forth. So we know the, the quality of the mind. The, um, the way it's affected by different mind, mental states, and, and factors that can arise there. And then we see um, a life, we, we look at experience through different lenses, through different kinds of patterns that arise, um, different ways that we can look at it in terms of, um, uh, again, a, an exploration of mind, in terms of um, things like we see it in, uh, experience in terms of suffering and the end of suffering, in terms of the Four Noble Truths, or different wholesome or unwholesome qualities that might be there. Um, so you could say we look at it in terms of what um, leads to freedom and what does not. Understanding. So I'm not going to go into um, a lot of detail on each of these. We'll probably explore them. We will explore them over the over the week in different ways. But the the beauty of this teaching, and and the, of these instructions, which are very comprehensive in body, for example, we know the body in terms of all the postures, in terms of activities, going and coming, bending and straightening the limbs, um, standing, sitting, lying down. Uh, the nature of the body to um, decay with death, um, all kinds of different things. It's elemental nature in terms of um, just the bare sensations of pressure and hardness, movement. Um, we see it in terms of uh, all these different ways and simply knowing that there is a body, the way we've been beginning the meditation, simply knowing there is a body. But the beauty of this teaching is that it it includes everything in our experience. There's nothing left out. And if you think about it, we really have to include everything in our life, everything in our relationship, in our, in our experience, or our practice will, will be incomplete. There'll be something that we're, uh, that remains un, unexamined and, and, uh, it'll never come to fulfillment. It won't, um, be complete. And so there's an important understanding in this, since we have, we are including the whole of our life. What we're after here is not some escape from life. We're not, um, through meditation, gaining some kind of special control over things so that we can only experience the things we want to, only have things go the way we want them to go. 
So we're, we're interested in a kind of freedom or a deep peace or happiness that is independent of things being a particular way. Our practice is not state-oriented. We're not trying to get to some blissful place and then somehow stay there. So it's important that we, we, we have some understanding, I think, of what the Buddha may have been pointing to when he said, this is the path leading to the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation for the disappearance of pain and grief and the rest of that for the realization of freedom. What does he mean? You know, does it mean we'll never be, have sad days? Does it mean that we'll never have any painful feelings in the body? You know, that's, that's unlikely to be the case. You know, we, we're going to have joys and sorrows and, these bodies get sick sometimes, and even if they don't, as we age, there's, I can tell you, there's painful feelings there that didn't used to be there. We all know this. So, so he must be pointing to something else. You know, not at some state where we only have pleasant feelings in the body, for example, and we never get sick, and there's never sadness in the mind, never sorrow. Never confusion. And if we were to look, and if if we asked the question in the hall, you know, what would motivate you to spend time on a retreat like this and undertake a, a meditation practice, something we might call a spiritual life, a spiritual path? You know, we'd. I think if we went underneath our individual stories and our, our what's personal to any one of us, we'd find there are two things there. There's a desire. Um, a beautiful wish in the heart, in in the mind, which we share with all beings to be happy or to be at ease, to be okay. Some version of that. And tied to that is um, feelings of things not quite right some sense of dis-ease, lack of ease. If we're interested in ease, we must not be completely at ease now. If we're looking for real happiness, there must be a sense that that's not here, at least not all the time. So there's a connection to, to what we could say, we could think of as stress or struggle or suffering on some level or other. It might be very deep um, difficulty, but it might be just a sense of uh, kind of dissatisfaction. Those things just aren't quite right. And if this lack of ease, this dis-ease, however we might experience it in any moment, is to lead us to a, a genuine a spiritual search, we really need to touch the, the breadth and the depth of the insecurity that, that it's resting on that underlies that lack of ease. And so we need a meaningful understanding of what is called dukkha in Pali language. It's a word that's widely tossed around in, in these kinds of circles. And it goes to the heart of the teachings. We really need to understand it because um, it's, it's, it's crucial to have a, have a clear understanding of what, this, what the Buddha was talking about in, when he's talked about dukkha. Because he said at one point, I, I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. <laughs> I teach suffering and the end of suffering. 
That is the only thing. So this word has meanings on different levels. On the most elemental or obvious level, it points to um, pain and painful feelings that come in the body, in the mind, pain associated with just having a body and the process of birth and aging, sickness, and the process of dying when that comes to be uh, what we're going through. Difficult mental and emotional states can be large and small, things that just don't go our way. When all you spent all afternoon working on the notes for your talk and that notes disappeared and you had to cobble something together at the last minute. Dukkha. Or when things really, um, real suffering that may come in our life, times of grief and um, times when when it's really, really difficult, when those we love suffer. And no matter what our circumstances, there's times when life is just plain hard. And, and that's just the way it is. And it's not the whole story to life, of course. You know, we have good times and joy and beauty. And we get that that range, what's sometimes called the, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. <laughs> There's a more subtle understanding of of uh, this word dukkha that is this quality of um, unreliable or unreliability or insecurity, a kind of fragility, an unsatisfactoriness that um, is true of all experience, even pleasant experience. It's intrinsic, and in this level, dukkha is this kind of inner anxiety that is produced by uh, constant change, the fact that everything is changing, pleasant experiences don't last, things don't stay the way we want them to stay. There's this um, constant change and uncontrollability. We can't get it to be only the way we want it to be. When I first started meditating at that time, I was living in uh, San Francisco, California in the United States, a city that I really like a lot. It's, uh, you know, my favorite city as far as cities goes in the, in the States. It's a beautiful place by, by the ocean and the, and a bay and it has a lot of, uh, history and, um, I had a good life. I had steady work, wasn't making a lot of money, but I had enough to live on and interesting work. I was, um, employed in making, doing sculpture and model making in a museum, was learning a lot, had great people to work with, um, nice place to live, a cool motorcycle, nice leather jacket, all, all the things that I thought, you know, I thought, oh, I've got it together here. You know, it seemed like, seemed great living this bohemian sort of artist's life in the cool city and, and yet, there was there were times when there was this kind of emptiness, like, well, is this all there is? This unsatisfactoriness. The the good times didn't last. I couldn't get it to uh, myself to you know to be happy all the time, and I just felt like I tried everything. And there was this touching into the truth of dukkha, this unreliability. I didn't know that's what it was. 
And somehow we we have this kind of conditioning in our lives that we're supposed to get things to where it's always how we want it and we're supposed to look like the people in television commercials. I don't know what they're like in New Zealand and the States. The people in the commercials are are always really happy and really good looking. And we're supposed to be happy and good looking too. And And if we can't get that to happen... Our inability to pull it off leads us to take this truth of dukkha personally as though somehow it's our fault if things aren't always the way we want them to be. So we did something wrong. You know, and we see, see some, as though somehow something's wrong or it's our fault. And as, and we have this idea, we approach our practice as though what we're, and aiming for what the Buddha's awakening is is some kind of steady state where it's always pleasant. But the liberation that the Buddha was pointing to isn't about escaping from life or getting to, to only be one way. Life goes on with its joys and sorrows, good days and bad days. But suffering in relation to this is another thing entirely. That's another matter entirely. And it's not that we're we're helpless, and that we that this understanding of this deep uh, insecurity, unreliability, has leads us to uh, a sense of resignation and hopelessness. And and we're not entirely without agency in our lives. We do what we can to live with grace and integrity, and to steer our lives in a good direction. But at the same time, opening to dukkha on this level of this deep insecurity, this inherent unsatisfactoriness, the inability of any one experience to be the source of our lasting happiness, simply because it doesn't stay around long enough to do that. This is, this is, this opens the door to the practice. This is, um, really the key. And there's an understanding that the Buddha came to in his exploration of this very subject, this the human condition, you could say, exploring the the fundamental existential questions of life, of you know, birth, aging, sickness, death. If I'm just going to get old and sick and die, what's what's the point? You know, that's what propelled him on his quest to understand. He saw that stress and suffering in, re- in relation to this inherent unsatisfactoriness, unreliability, fragility of life, that suffering in relation to that truth is, is born in the mind and is born out of how we're relating to that truth. Wanting things to be other than the way they are when we can't always control them. And this isn't to deny the very real suffering that exists in the world for so many. And the truths of poverty and injustice and oppression are all too real. And and sometimes life is hard and sometimes we get sick and those we love get sick. But if we look, if we actually look, we'll see that the root of our struggle and suffering in relation to this aspect of life has its genesis in the mind and our our misguided attempts to find happiness by trying to have it, by resisting and struggling against this very fundamental 
aspect of reality by the struggling against the way it really is. And so we, through these teachings and through this practice, we're shifting radically our usual approach because we're very conditioned to look outside of ourselves for the source of our struggles and stress and for the solution to them. But this understanding is actually really good news. Because if, if our, if our suffering was entirely due to the, the conditions that we encounter in life, our situation will, would ultimately be hopeless because we don't have control over things. Can't get them to only be the way we want them to be. But if we open to this understanding of dukkha and bring this understanding that, um, that suffering and, and non-suffering is found in our relationship to the way life is, it transforms the way we approach things. You know, this is where we started, this is where the Buddha started. So the famous Thai uh, forest master uh, teacher named Ajahn Chah, the famous monk who lived in the last century. Um, there's a path, the Ajahn Chah Grove, um, down here. It brought him to my mind today. He spoke about this in, time, in terms of what he called the two kinds of suffering. He said there are two kinds of suffering, the suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you are not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. So until we open to this understanding in a skillful way, we'll always be looking for a way out and always be turning to that which just by its nature is inherently incapable of bringing us a source of lasting happiness or satisfaction. And it's an endless and ultimately futile search. We're always turning to some uh, transient experience to be the key to our happiness, our okayness, and we'll always fail. So if we open skillfully to this understanding that life has this inherent unsatisfactoriness or fragility, unreliability, then we'll seek a, a, something that might be a good source of happiness. Some will seek a, a reliable path, you could say. Something that might lead us to a deeper kind of happiness, a happiness that or peace that isn't dependent on things being any particular way. It said that when the Buddha surveyed the world after his awakening experience, that he he saw beings trying to be happy and doing the very thing that brought them suffering. And not much has changed over the last 2,500 plus years now. And, and if you think about it, all the stuff we and everyone else gets up to, all the shenanigans that go down in the world, underneath that is this movement towards happiness that I spoke about, which is actually a beautiful movement of heart. But there's a lot of confusion about what happiness is and what might actually get us to a lasting kind of happiness. So we have a possibility of shifting the way we approach things and of finding 
a deep abiding kind of happiness or peace right within the changing conditions that we encounter in our life. So when the Buddha said, now and before I teach one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering, he was making a a statement that points really to the heart of things here. To To find the end of suffering, we have to understand its cause and let that cause go. So we start to find uh, what you could say is a wise relationship with the truth of things, with the reality, where we're not wrestling with the way things are. We stop fighting against the truth of du- noble truth of dukkha, and move, move towards um, a harmonious relationship, a wise relationship, an alignment with that truth. And it's not a state of resignation or defeat, as I said. It's not, you know, someone sometimes. People say, well, Buddhism, that means their teaching is life is suffering. It doesn't stop there. <laughs> That's not it. It's a total misunderstanding. That's not what this is pointing to. But as we come into alignment with the way things are, in a wise relationship there, then we start to touch a, a possibility of a deeper abiding kind of peace that is independent of the changing conditions doesn't depend on things staying, being only one way. And the key that unlocks the door to this understanding is this quality of mindfulness, mindful awareness, sati, the sati of satipatthana. This, this, is, um, this, is a, this is the key that unlocks the ability to actually see what's going on. And it's a simple capacity that we all have. Right now, you can notice, you can ask yourself the question, is there awareness? Am I aware? Is there mindfulness? Check it and see. Yes. You cannot ask that question and not say yes. In the asking of it, we're there. Check it out. It's so simple that it goes unnoticed. But this is a a natural capacity that we all have. This ability to bring awareness, to actually show up for our life, this is a complete game changer. This makes everything possible. The Buddha spoke this to this very directly in a famous line in uh, some teachings in verse form called the Dhammapada. Mindfulness is the pathway to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful do not die, but the heedless are as if dead already. That's pretty strong. So mindfulness opens the door to the practice. All things are possible. Without it, we're just living out our conditioning. We're just going in a circle. That's what he. That's one way of understanding this statement. Uh, the heedless are as if dead already. Just perpetuating cycles of suffering in our lives in the world. So this quality of mindfulness, as we you know, you just 
just there, checking it out for yourselves, just bringing attention right now. Feel the body sitting, feel the hands touching, hear the sound of my voice. Notice what it's like for you right now, bored, tired, interested. However it is, the mind is like this. It's so simple, it's available in any moment. It's, it's so powerful, though. It changes everything. And the beauty of the practice is that there's nothing in our experience that we can't be mindful of. Nothing. We can bring this quality to anything in our experience, to any aspect of our life, to what's difficult and what's easy, to the beautiful and the non-beautiful, to things that we like and things we don't like. And even better, anything that arises, anything, any experience, is a suitable vehicle for uh, understanding, for the arising of insight. There's not, not something better to be aware of. We have our preferences. We prefer nice, light, pleasant things. But we're not always going to get those. Anything is suitable. In his teachings, the Buddha often, he used a lot of images from uh, life at that time and, and um, he, he used visual um, illustrations to make certain points to try to help, help, his, help us see what he was, uh, see what he's trying to, to point at, trying to teach about. And there's a famous image um, of using a raft to cross a flooded area as a, a metaphor, an image of, of um, the path to uh, peace or freedom or enlightenment. This is a quotation. Suppose someone were traveling along a path and saw a great expanse of water with the near shore dubious and risky and the further shore secure and free from risk, but with neither a ferry boat nor a bridge going to the far shore. The thought would then occur to them, here is this great expanse of water with the near shore dubious and risky, the further shore secure and free from risk, but with neither a ferry boat nor a bridge going from this shore to the other. What if I were to gather together grass and twigs and branches and leaves, and having bound them together, make a raft, and were to cross over to safety on the other shore, independence on the raft, and by making an effort with my hands and my feet? Then, having gathered together twigs and grass and branches and leaves, and having bound them to make a raft, they would then cross over to safety on to the other shore, independence on the raft, and by making an effort with hands and feet. So this this image of crossing this flooded area is a, often used and. I think it's kind of a, an, an apt sort of metaphor for what we could think of as uh, the movement of transcendence or liberation or different ways we might conceive of, of what we're doing, what we would say is a spiritual path, or the path of the Buddhist path of awakening. Because often that which motivates us, this sense of dis-ease I was speaking of at the beginning of the talk, is is a sense of of being swept along by a flood, by a flood of events, of 
times being feeling overwhelmed by even going under a flood of flood of worries of duties or obligations and pressures and responsibilities or flood of change and unpredictability all the things that come in life and so this sense of crossing a flood is is about finding an an easeful way through all of that through all of life's changes and the further shore this place of uh, the Buddha said um, secure and free from risk from from dubious risky conditions to to freedom from that it's about finding our way to a kind of stability or firm ground or you could say a stability of mind and heart that will allow us to negotiate the insecurity without having it destroy our peace of mind. So in this image of the raft, there's uh, some useful things to notice there. In the illustration, the raft is constructed from things that are found nearby. It's made out of leaves and twigs and reeds and sticks and branches. So we make our raft from stuff we find handy right here, right now. It's made of the material, the sticks and leaves and reeds and such, are the the material of our ongoing experience. We make our raft out of bodily sensations, out of this stuff, out of pressure and hardness, movement, tension, heat and cold. We make it out of pleasant and unpleasant feelings. We make it out of stuff we like and stuff we don't like. And we make it out of thoughts and moods. We make it out of restlessness and sleepiness. We make it out of doubt and joy and sorrow and beautiful things and not so beautiful things. It's all the stuff, all the stuff we noticed today. All the stuff we liked and all the stuff we didn't like. So this is our vehicle, our raft is the stuff of our life, this mundane experience. Pleasant, unpleasant, coarse, or fine, gross or subtle. So this is what we find in these instructions in this teaching as we use it all. We don't, it's all good stuff. We bind it together to make our raft. And we take the stuff of our experience, we bind it. What did the Buddha say? We rope it together, bind it together. Bind them together, we bind it with mindfulness. Mindfulness is, is the, the, the twine that binds it all together. It's all suitable. And we don't have to make it out of special stuff, right? It's a raft. It's not a special kind of luxury cruise boat. You know, it's a raft. It's a funky raft, actually. In the the Buddha's image, it's leaves and sticks and twigs and stuff. It's not even very good material, (laughs) right? It's not a luxury liner that we just cruise along above the water. It's not something that we can just motor along. It's not a high-power speedboat where we just get across before we even notice it. It's a raft. It's in the water and we're propelling it with our hands and feet. <laughs> right? 
with our willingness to start over and come back every time we do. We paddle it. And it's if it's a raft made out of that junk, it means we're going to get wet some of the time. And the going can get rough. And the raft is probably going to need repairs now and then. So in terms of meditation, then we are constructing this raft out of the materials of our life and our experience. And we gather it together, we bind it with mindfulness, and we, through our own efforts, in the image of laboring with our hands and feet, walking, reaching, we bind it together with mindfulness. And the more steady, continuous our mindfulness is, the more stable our raft is going to be. But sometimes it's going to get, it might get broken apart. You know, it's not made out of really super great stuff and the flood can get really strong. And sometimes we're, we're going to have to grab the stuff that's floating by and bind it back together and climb back on. There's always something floating by that we can use to make our raft and we make a new one and we start paddling again when we come back out of being swept away by the flood of our mental activity or some emotion. And so we don't have to have special states or certain special experiences. We use what's happening right now, whatever's at hand. That's what we work with. And through this process of of bringing this present moment awareness of mindfulness together with um, kindness and acceptance and perseverance. Over time, we start to develop a certain um, kind of stability and balance of mind where, where our, we can stay with what's happening more easily. We stay more firmly with our experience long enough for insight into the deeper truths to arise. And through this process, there's a kind of natural discernment that starts to happen where we see directly what is skillful and wholesome, what leads towards peace and happiness, and what leads in the other direction, what leads to suffering in our own lives in the world. We see this in deeper and deeper ways. And and there's the possibility then of making wise choices in terms of what energies we want to follow what we should abandon, what will actually be uh, leading us towards ease, peace, abiding kind of happiness, and what what doesn't. We can actually start to see that because we're not just being swept along by the flood of experience. And so we start to reorient our relationship to this intrinsic unreliability or fragility, this unsatisfactoriness that's not bad or wrong, it's just the way it is. We stop struggling with it. We don't relate to it as a mistake or somehow our fault, something we did wrong. We start to come into alignment or into harmony with it. And we stop asking the world of changing conditions to provide something that it can never provide. It's not fair to ask it not fair to ask it to be the source of our lasting happiness and peace. We don't judge it. We don't judge ourselves, either us or it, as wrong or bad. 
We don't look for safety or refuge there. It's like I was talking about refuge last night. We look for refuge in wakefulness, in the truth of things, in the uh, our inner integrity and our aspiration, and in those who share that with us. We take refuge in wisdom, wakefulness, love, in the truth of things. We stand on reality. And this is opening to the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Opening to the truth of things. So we stand on on reality and we find um, a kind of refuge that's available and that's reliable, <clears throat> that has a reliability that doesn't isn't tied into what's actually happening. We take refuge, you could say, in awareness itself, a voice of wisdom that's already in our own heart. There's a place inside that knows the truth and that's already free. So we titled this retreat, Awakening Our Inner Wisdom, or is that what we called it? Our Natural Wisdom. Natural and Inner Awakening our natural wisdom. So we start to to unpack and untangle things so that that natural wisdom can arise and shine forth because it's already there. It's our, our birthright. So we're not getting something we don't have. We're not going somewhere other than where we are right now. But our understanding changes Natural wisdom arises, and that's what sets us free. So let's have a, just a couple of minutes of silence and let these words float off. <clears throat> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.